With this session of our Knowing God study, we have come to what I think J.I. Packer would consider the climax of this entire work. In fact, Kevin Van Hooser, in the foreword to this version of Knowing God that we've been reading, speaks to this when he cites that A.W. Tozier quote that we used at the beginning of this whole series, where Tozier says, what comes into our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us. And then Van Hooser goes on to add, close on its heels, however, is what comes into our minds when we think about the gospel. Packer packed his thought into a three-word phrase, adoption through propitiation. This is why knowing God is for Packer much more than an intellectual exercise. To know God is to relate to the creator of all things as one's loving father. The chapter on adoption is, not surprisingly, one of the highlights of the book you are about to read. Knowing God, as we made clear early in this study, and as Van Hooser makes clear in this preface, is not about a mere intellectual grasp of some ideas about God. It's about a relationship with Almighty God, who wants to be in relationship with us and, in fact, invites us into His life. But how does that happen? Well, that's what these chapters that we're studying in this session, chapters 18 and 19, are all about. And what these chapters do is unpack that three-word summary of the gospel that Van Hooser highlights, adoption through propitiation. But what do those terms mean? There's a lot of unpacking to be done there. Well, let's take a look at two highlights from our reading. One from each of the two chapters that we read to see why Packer cares about these terms so much, why they're so significant to our understanding of the gospel. First, let's do this though. Notice the grammar of that three-word phrase, adoption through propitiation. That key word, through, tells us that one of these things is the result of the other. In this case, adoption happens as a result of propitiation, and that's the, exactly the order in which these chapters handle these important topics. So let's look at chapter 18 first and see why Packer thinks propitiation is so crucial for our understanding of the gospel and for knowing God. But before we go any further, you may be wondering what this word even means. Perhaps you've never heard it before in your life. Propitiation. What is this? And let's just begin by giving it a kind of Webster's dictionary definition, a popular level understanding of what propitiation is. And this is what it is. Regaining the favor of someone by doing something that restores a breach in relationship. Now, the problem with this dictionary definition, popular level, common understanding of propitiation is that Scripture's picture of propitiation is quite different, and Packer makes this clear in chapter 18. Of all the things that 
Packer says about propitiation, it's important that we highlight what Packer says, how it differs from this common understanding. First, the way he does this is he seeks to distinguish it from the ancient pagan understanding of propitiation, to distinguish the biblical way of understanding it from that ancient pagan way. In fact, Packer starts off the chapter with a well-known story from Greek mythology about how the Greek army was held up in port because they had offended a god, and in fact, it was a goddess, Artemis. And Agamemnon, the leader of the Greeks, had to call for his poor young daughter to be brought to port so that he could sacrifice her to appease Artemis. Artemis was upset because some of the Greeks had hunted one of her sacred stags and killed it, and she was angry. So the Greek soldiers had to do something to please her so that they could set sail again. In other words, there was something within the goddess. There was something that had to be overcome, her anger within her. It had to be appeased so that they could move forward, so that there could be a right relationship. Now, the problem with this view of propitiation, as Packer highlights, is that it images human relations with God as, in Packer's words, a callous commercialism, a matter of managing and manipulating your gods by cunning bribery. That's what pagan propitiation is. It's a kind of transactional relationship, or in Packer's word, commercialism, rooted in manipulation and control. So how does the biblical view, the view that Packer wants to set forth, differ from that pagan and even, I would say, popular view as we understand propitiation? Well, of all the things that I can highlight in chapter 18, I want us to look at just one paragraph that I want to commend to you to highlight in your book, literally highlight it, to meditate on it, and to come back to. Here's the key way a biblical view of propitiation differs from that ancient pagan view, and again, from a common modern-day view of it as well. It's where in this chapter Packer tells us that propitiation is the work of God Himself. Packer begins by distinguishing in this paragraph that pagan view of propitiation from Christian views of it by referring to that pagan view once again as a kind of commercialism, a form of manipulation and bribery. But in Christianity, propitiation isn't about overcoming some barrier within God. That is, the Son's sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, doesn't change the mind of an angry and capricious father. Like Agamemnon's daughter, her sacrifice changed the mind of the goddess Artemis. No, in fact, as Packer goes on to say, the idea that the kind son changed the mind of his unkind father by offering himself in place of sinful man is no part of the gospel message. It is a sub-Christian, indeed an anti-Christian idea, for it denies the unity of will in the father and the son and so in reality falls back into polytheism, asking us to believe in two different gods. 
But the Bible rules this out absolutely by insisting it was God himself who took the initiative in quenching his own wrath against those whom despite their ill desert, he loved and had chosen to save. In other words, I think of all the things that Packer tries to get across in this chapter to us, this is the one I think he believes to be central to the biblical understanding of propitiation. Namely, that God is not a passive object when it comes to our salvation. In other words, he's not standing there with arms folded waiting to be pleased. No, in the biblical equation, Packer is trying to get us see God is the active subject. And Christ's willingness to go to the cross is the revelation of the links that God is willing to go to to rescue his creation from their separation from him. So if that's what's at the heart of propitiation in Scripture and according to Packer, then what are propitiation's benefits? What do we gain from it? Again, remember Packer's three-word summary of the gospel, adoption through propitiation. Again, through propitiation, we receive then adoption. That's the benefit, and that's the focus of chapter 19. And I don't know if this struck you as peculiar, but Packer makes adoption central to salvation. Much of evangelical preaching and teaching, perhaps of the last 50, 100 years even, has often focused on the theological idea of justification as the key benefit of God's propitiatory work in Christ. But Packer in this chapter says no. Justification, that is in Packer's words, God's forgiveness of the past together with his acceptance for the future, is just the beginning. Justification is the threshold into the fuller life as God's son or daughter. In fact, as you may recall, Packer says that while justification, again, forgiveness of sins, being made right with God, is the fundamental and primary, that is, first blessing of the Christian life, it is not the highest blessing. Adoption is the highest blessing of the gospel. Why? Packer says, because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Justification is a forensic idea conceived in terms of law and viewing God as judge. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of this relationship. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God, the Father, is greater. So just as I tried to give you a hub around which to center your thinking about propitiation in chapter 18, that it's all about God's work through and through, so too here I want to commend this excerpt to you as the hub around which to think about this important idea of adoption in this chapter. In other words, to sum up what Packer is saying, if we content ourselves with a faith that is only about justification, that is the forgiveness of our sins, then we're missing out 
on our true end, which is not just a right relationship with God, not just the forgiveness of sins, but a loving relationship with God, an intimate relationship of trust and delight. Packer emphasizes this toward the end of chapter 19 when he writes about assurance. As Packer in that final part says, the reformers, and in particular Martin Luther, they like to distinguish what they called an historical faith, that is a belief in the facts of Christianity, the, even the facts of salvation, without a response or commitment, without an inner change. Comparing that to true faith, or contrasting that with true faith, or in the reformers' words, using the Latin, fiducia, confidence. So to come full circle from where we started this session and really this whole series, Packer emphasizes that we need more than just a mere cognitive acknowledgement of God's forgiveness to have the life that God desires for us, a life of being made more and more into Christ's likeness. We need fiducia, confidence, first in the truth of God's promise of pardon and life to believing sinners, and second in its application to oneself as a believer. Faith, declared Luther, is a living, deliberate confidence in the grace of God, so certain that for it one can die a thousand deaths, and such confidence makes us joyous, intrepid, and cheerful towards God and all creation. At the beginning of this session, I said, I believe Packer is reaching the climax of our study of knowing God in these chapters. Because if we're to know God better through this book, not just as a good judge who justifies us and acquits us and sets us free, but as a loving father who longs to dwell with us, just as the father of the prodigal son longed to be united with his son, then what more glorious truth can there be than the truth of our adoption in Christ? Again, not just that we're justified, forgiven, but we're given the very privileges Christ has as God's well-beloved Son, the privileges of sonship, of being a child of God. Does your faith, in Luther's way of saying it, give you confidence so certain that for it you could die a thousand deaths, a confidence that makes you joyous, intrepid, bold, and cheerful towards God and your neighbor, the world, then I think if it doesn't, Packer would encourage you, I think Holy Scripture would encourage you to meditate on this truth of your adoption in Christ especially as J.I. Packer lays it out in this chapter 19. Or perhaps knowing J.I. Packer and his fondness for St. Paul and the letter to the Romans, he might encourage you to focus on this brief passage from that book that says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So may the wonders of God's love for us in Christ so capture our imagination and our hearts that we may live more and more into our status as God's adopted sons and daughters. <laughs>